she talked about religion being either dominated by extremism on the one hand and routinism on the other hand. Neither of those things are compelling. That if you're just going through the motions, nobody's going to care or want to be engaged in that. And if you're so extreme that you're not understanding the bigger context of the world, that's also really problematic. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. So what is a religious community and why does it matter? We talk about that a lot on In Good Faith, communities of faith, religious communities. Today we're talking with people about the value of community in faith life. In our highly individualized society, we tend to focus on our personal spiritual experiences. And sometimes other people can just seem like backdrops to our personal journey. But a lot of religious traditions are based in the idea of gathering together to confess belief to each other and to support each other. Our relationship to the rest of our group is specifically discussed in the sacred texts of many religions because they came from ancient groups of people living together and creating new systems of thinking and governing themselves. The word celebrate, originally a Latin word to describe the experience of mass in the early Catholic Church, meaning to sing praises in great numbers. The mass was meant to be done together in a group. The cathedrals of Europe give us a reminder of just how big that group could be. And think of Ramadan, how the adherents of Islam fast during the day and then come together as families and neighbors to feast. Our communities literally shape how we understand God, ourselves, and each other, the people inside and outside of our faith tradition. Community is incredibly important to our mental and physical health. Living in community with other believers can be a matter of survival. Our guests today talked to us about why they felt the push to start new faith communities, how they did it, and what happened. And one thing they all seem to have in common is the desire to create a space for all people to be made welcome, or to reach out to people who might not normally feel welcome in traditional faith communities. We'll discuss the foundation of ICAR, a Los Angeles-based synagogue with Melissa Balaban and the creation in Denver of the Highland Church, a Christian non-denominational church supporting LGBTQ families with Rachel McClare and Reverend Dr. Jenny Morgan. And we talked to Dan Foster in Australia from Backyard Church Online, a church for people who don't like church. That's today on In Good Faith. Our first guest today is Raj Mankad, the op-ed editor at the Houston Chronicle. Raj spoke to our producer, Heather Bigley, about the South Asian Sunday School his family started in Mobile, Alabama, that since became the Gulf Coast Hindu Society, and why that monthly group was so important to his own identity. Raj's parents migrated to the U.S. in the 1970s for medical school from India, which is a majority Hindu nation. But even today, Hindus make up just less than 6% of the American population, and the majority of those are white converts. Imagine how the landscape of the United States would have looked like over 40 years ago, even in a cosmopolitan city. In 1979, the family relocated from Chicago, Illinois, to Mobile, Alabama, when his parents took jobs at the University of South Alabama Hospital. Raj was two. It was the kind of situation where if you were at the mall, Bel Air Mall, and you saw another Indian family, you would walk straight up to them and invite them to dinner. There were so few Indians that we all kind of stuck together in a way you wouldn't find in almost any other context. So India is huge I mean, in terms of its population and its diversity, the number of languages spoken, the number of religions. All of us came together, Hindus, Muslims, Sikh, Jain, Christians, and we would gather at each other's houses, have dinners, kids would play. It was a real respite kind of a place to feel safe and valued because the, the contradiction was that the United States and Mobile had welcomed us and it was this 
incredible land of opportunity, but it was also a difficult place, especially for us to grow up in. The thing that's hard to get across to people, including Indian Americans, South Asian Americans, what it was like to be at the vanguard, to be the first of the Indian American to be growing up in the U.S. There wasn't any kind of script. There wasn't any kind of precedent or a way to do things. There was no expectation about how we were supposed to be. There wasn't even this model minority myth. There wasn't an idea that we were supposed to sound a certain way, that when we spoke, we would sound like white people or should we sound like black people? It was all unknown. You told me a story about being at school and the white kids around you peppering you with questions about your beliefs and you going home and asking your dad about those same beliefs. My parents decided to send me to an Episcopal school. It was started in, in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. So you had this situation where the public schools weren't funded well and you had these private schools that were almost entirely white. And I was generally the only person of color in the classroom. And Alabama is in the Bible Belt. Yes, very We know much, this. Right? Alabama is, is a deeply religious state. Yeah. It's on the radio and, stations. Uh, it's, on, it's in the public discourse. It could be Boy Scouts. It could be just a park. It could be anywhere. Somebody would really kind of confront me about my spiritual background or my faith. This was also the time that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out in the theaters. So the depiction of Hindu people was that we ate monkey brains and there was this character who could like open people's chest and like pull their heart out. And Pat Robertson was a figure on TV and would hold up like an image of Kali or, or Ganesh or something like that and say like, look at what these people worship the devil. And so people would confront me and say like, well, why do you, why do you worship an elephant headed God? And sometimes it would be like that, you know, it would just be curiosity. Other times they really wanted me to hear the word of Christ. And the thing is, when you're just a kid, you're kind of open ended as well. And so I would just go home and ask those questions to my parents in India when you're, if you're growing up Hindu, the stories and the beliefs are just part and parcel of life. You might not actually go to a temple to learn about the philosophy or learn about the stories or way of being. It might come through a meal that's being cooked and some stories being told while you're cooking. You know, it might just be on the TV and there might be some like Hindu television program, or you might be walking down the street and there's like a temple there. It's just part of the rhythm of your life. So when I would ask my parents these questions, they actually didn't have like a ready-made answer because they didn't grow up with people challenging them all the time about their beliefs. My dad especially is really well-read. He also knows how to not just read in our vernacular language, Gujarati, but he can read and understand Sanskrit. He decided that on Sundays, he would do this equivalent to Bible study where he would teach my older brother and me about Hinduism. He mentioned this to some of the other parents at one of these Indian get-togethers, and they said, well, we want our kids to be there too. So first couple of times, it's just me and my brother in our living room, but it was just a couple of months and suddenly we, all the families couldn't even fit into anybody's living room. Like we would push the couches back and all sit on the floor, squeeze in. But pretty soon we moved to meeting at the Jewish community center. They were really welcoming to us and they didn't really use their building on Sundays. So once a month, we would meet at the JCC and it would be my dad and another elder named Virupak Chakathandapani, or Dr. Pani, as we called him. And they would teach us. Dr. Pani would open with some meditation. We would chant Om. And then different families had kind of submitted their favorite prayers, the slokas, and we gathered them into this kind of binder, this notebook, and then we recite them together. And then my dad would take us through some verses from the Bhagavad Gita and sort of explain them. And then Dr. Bani would share some stories from the Ramayana or from the Mahabharata. And then we would sing spiritual songs, which for us are call 
in response. The the drummer, the person who played Bubla, was actually a Muslim man, and he came every month. There were Jain families, and sometimes they would take over and, and teach us about Jainism. So we would sing, and the songs, they came from all different parts of India. And again, you wouldn't see that in, in very many places, like where people from North Gujarat, I mean, North India, South India, all kind of mixing it together. It was a kind of idea of what India was supposed to be that the Indian nationalists had all along, but, you know, never really happened, except in this crazy corner of Alabama. The women coordinated these awesome potlucks, and, uh, and then we'd play, and we did that once a month. That was a really important part of my life. So going back to the environment at the Christian school, I got better about explaining it because my parents and all these other parents went to these great lengths to make sure that we were raised up in our, in our culture, in all its sort of variety and, and richness, or at least the best they could do in this outpost of the Indian diaspora. I mean, this is, to me, such a beautiful story of community and support. And essentially, it's about your own survival, right? Yeah, it is about survival. The thing that my parents really, I don't think they could grasp is that it's one thing to come with your sense of self fully formed to the United States and then be in a foreign environment and to be constantly challenged. That's one thing in it. And it's hard for them, right? They they persevered through it. They also have a huge amount of gratitude. I think the thing I want to make sure I get across <laughs> is one thing I become more and more aware of when I go to other countries now is that the United States really is exceptional in the degree to which it accepts people from other countries. Right. And people feel like they are American. My parents feel like they are Americans. I feel like I'm an American person. I think that that's pretty unusual. I don't think a lot of other countries have that kind of capacity to just like absorb so many different kinds of people and and to allow them to be sort of themselves, but also feel American. It's not perfect, right? There's, I mean, there's huge problems. Any case, so it's one thing for people to come with a fully formed identity of the United States, and it's another to grow up here, especially when you're the first group and and there's no there's no precedent and there's no guidance. I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like, because I don't think very many people have that experience, right? Because if you're, if you're a white person in the United States, most places, most of the time, the whole culture is set up around what you're familiar with uh, and you're sort of raised in, in that mainstream. But even other groups like African-American people, African-American people in Alabama faced hostile conditions all of the time, right? Like right. this is just, this is the 80s, the early 80s, late 70s. It was just like 10 or 15 years since the Edmund Pettus Bridge March, right? Right. Like John Lewis had just gotten his skull cracked. Right. By the police. By the police trying to vote. I was growing up with the children of the people who cracked his head. Let me put it that way. Right. right. So, so black people in Alabama faced very hostile circumstances, but they went home to a community of people that had created all kinds of, of uh, infrastructure to, to help them survive and feel whole and fully human, namely the church, right? Right. I didn't have that, except that I did. You know, my parents really, and, and the other parents in that community did something extraordinary. They created this place where we could feel loved and fully human. That was Raj Mankad in Houston, speaking with our producer, Heather Bigley. Later, we'll hear from Dr. Rhonda Williams about her efforts to encourage inclusivity at the Magnolia Grove Buddhist Monastery in Batesville, Mississippi. Raja's experience shows us how a community might develop its spiritual strength through banding together when faced with challenging circumstances. Maybe you have a similar experience of being a stranger in a strange place and finding support from the few others who share either your beliefs or your background. Judaism in the U.S. has a much higher visibility than Hinduism, but it also has had strong communities for generations here in certain cities, like Chicago and New York and Houston. Additionally, Jewish youth have gathered at summer camps since the 1890s. 
In fact, in the U.S., about 60,000 kids go to Jewish summer camp every year. But what if, even with all this support, religion doesn't seem to connect with your passions and interests? We spoke with Melissa Balaban in Los Angeles about her experience creating Ikar, a synagogue looking to re-envision Jewish engagement. Ikar actually means the essence. It's the essence of a thing. And when we started Ikar 18 years ago, the idea was to really get back to the essence of our tradition, to uncover, get through some of the hardened pieces and get to some of the fire of our tradition and what really it means to be Jewish in all of its forms and living into being Jewish in every kind of aspect. And so that that's why we came up with a name. So you have an interesting juxtaposition of coming from a tradition that, of course, is thousands of years old, and yet you've created this new community yeah, there's definitely a story. I always joke that I'm kind of the accidental professional Jew, that if you had known me in college or before, I, you know, I never did anything Jewish. I didn't know where the Hillel was. I I was completely really disengaged with my Jewish life. I grew up, I went to Jewish camp, which was my favorite thing in the world. Um, as is true for a lot of folks, camp is their most profound Jewish experience. But after camp, nothing feels relevant to your life. But as I got older and when I was in law school, I started to be more engaged in my Jewish life and try to explore and learn a little bit more. I always felt ignorant. And even though I went to Hebrew school for 14 years, I mostly cut class and caused trouble and and never really learned much. Don't tell my Hebrew school teachers that. (laughs) When I started to get engaged and then I got married and then I had kids and then I thought, oh, wow, we have to give our kids something. And we actually were sort of looking, we were searching. We were a member of another synagogue and there were just reasons that it just wasn't really resonating with us. And at the time we had a, a maybe an eight and a 12 year old. We were looking and I couldn't find a place that resonated both for me and my husband and was spiritual and intellectually stimulating, but also would bring my children in. And I was fetching to my friend, fetching meaning complaining in Yiddish, to my friend saying, I can't find a place for us. And he said, you should meet my friend, Sharon Browse. She's a rabbi and she's really amazing. And I'm like, okay, but I just took this new job. I didn't have time to do anything, but okay, I'll meet this woman who was 29 at the time. So we scheduled a meeting and in my living room and just a little backstory that my my husband would describe himself as an atheist. I would say he's a New Yorker. He's a bit of a curmudgeon. He's not, he's not a joiner and he wouldn't call him a spiritual guy at all. And I just tell you that by way of background. So you sort of know who we are and what we are doing. I was more of the spiritual driver of of the family. So we had this meeting with this young woman who was 29 at the time and looked about 13. And she started to speak about her vision of what Jewish life could look like. And we started articulate our idea of what we wanted out of Jewish life. And it became this sort of magical evening of us going back and forth and really dreaming about what a Jewish community could look like. She left at about midnight and I was sort of buzzing in my head thinking, wow, we've got to do something, but my husband's going to think I'm out of my mind because I have this big job and he's an atheist and he doesn't care about this stuff. And we get to the top of the stairs. He turns around and he looks at me and he goes, our daughters have to grow up with that woman as their rabbi and we have to do whatever we can to make it happen. Wow. And so that was sort of the beginning. It, it was about creating something that we wanted, that you know, we were craving something that was good for our children that brought them into Jewish life, that made them fall in love with Jewish life. And that was the beginning. It just started to grow quicker than we could have ever have imagined. But really, it was about creating something that we wanted for ourselves. You talked about you didn't feel the fire in some of the previous uh, spaces you'd been in religiously. Is that part of what started you engaging again with Judaism? You wanted to connect with that somehow. It didn't feel relevant that I would listen to the rabbi speak and it didn't have any relevance to my life. I couldn't understand how it connected. And actually in law school, for the first time, there was a rabbi in town named Heim Seidlerfellow who actually ended up officiated at our wedding. And I went to a service of his when I was in law school. And for the first time, he connected Torah and text and scripture to justice. It was something that I was deeply passionate about. 
And it was like mind blowing for me. I thought, wow, I had no idea that this stuff could be relevant. I thought this was just a bunch of ancient texts that had nothing to do with my life or who I am. And when he connected it, it made me realize, ah, there is something more here for me. And there's something that I want for myself and ultimately my family. That first meeting when we met Robert Browse, she talked about religion being either dominated by extremism on the one hand, and this is every religion, Judaism, all of them, and routinism on the other hand, and that neither of those things are compelling to this generation, that if you're just going through the motions, nobody's going to care or want to be engaged in that. And if you're so extreme that you're not understanding the bigger context of the world, that's also really problematic. So how can we find a place in the middle of that where, again, you're uncovering the fire of our tradition, how rich it is, how rich our texts are, allowing people to own that? From the beginning, we've started doing learning in houses. We call them house parties because a lot of people aren't going to say, oh, I'm going to go do tech study and I'm going to go to a classroom and sit in a class at a desk with fluorescent lights. But if somebody says, hey, you want to come over and have some wine and cheese and we'll sit around and as many people will fit in our living room and we'll talk about some of our texts and then put the text in their hands and have a rabbi guide them through it and realize, oh, These texts are mine too. I can see something in these for me. I see some relevance for me. I see something that compels me. And it's not just some old book that nobody wants to read anymore. So I think that's some of it, finding ways into the tradition for people. The other thing that Rabbi Browse said to us, how can you be a Jew who goes to Shabbat services every week and keeps kosher and abides by all the rules and have that not change who you are in the world and what your responsibility is to the world? And at the same time, How can you be a Jew who engages in social justice and not understand that it's your texts and traditions that are informing and inspiring that? So we really need to integrate those things together. A lot of the reason I think Jews step away from Jewish life is they feel like there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of Hebrew and there's a lot of insider baseball that you think everybody knows the secret handshake except you. And I had that experience going into a a synagogue in New York or in Portugal or wherever I was traveling and having no idea what was going on and thinking I'm the only one who doesn't know. So one of the things we do at Ikar is try to make the barrier of entry very low. So there's no knowledge required. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to have any sort of knowledge about scripture or anything. But We're going to ask a lot of you and we're going to challenge you and we're going to ask you to engage and learn and and increase your knowledge. And we found that to be a really potent formula for folks to be engaged because they feel welcomed in and not intimidated and not talked down to if they're really knowledgeable and not speaking over their head if they feel like they don't have a lot of knowledge. Mm. I, um, I think one of the things that we've really been aware of lately is that the Jewish community is exceedingly diverse in every way. And one of our responsibilities as a Jewish community is to ensure that we're as radically welcoming to every kind of person as possible, race and gender identification and religious affiliation and background and how they even came to, if they're Jewish or if they're just a Jewish partner, if they're Jew curious. And how do we make sure that everything we do is radically welcoming of all of those people. I'm thinking back to when you said your husband, after this first meeting, said, our daughters need to grow up in a synagogue with that rabbi. Well, I can tell you a story that would that makes me cry every time I, I tell it. But so my, do- my oldest daughter, who's now 28, was in the first class of B'nai Mitzvah of, of kids who went through Bar and Bat Mitzvah. They always write a speech and it's based on their Torah portion. So she had written something and it was fine. And she went to meet with Rabbi Browse. And my husband and I were sitting on the sofa in the back of Rabbi Browse's office. And she said to her, I don't think this is your Torah. I don't think this is coming from inside you. And we watched as she sort of pulled something out of Maya that Maya didn't even know existed. And she wrote the most beautiful speech. And at the end of the weekend, I was sitting on her bed And I said, Maya, what was the best part of your bat mitzvah? And she said, I think it was when I was giving my Devar Torah because I felt like I had something to say and the community was listening to me. And I thought, wow, what a gift to give a 13-year-old girl 
to say, you have something to say, you have something important to say, and people are listening to you. And to me, I was like, okay, that's enough. Mm. <laughs> this is reason enough to have, um, to have grown up with this. We just heard from Alyssa Balaban, CEO of ECAR, a Jewish synagogue based in Los Angeles. Melissa's hopes for her daughters inspired her to create a new community that became a home for hundreds. Her drive and tenacity reminds me of Dr. Rhonda Williams, who worked to create a retreat for Black and Indigenous people of color, or BIPOC, at the Magnolia Grove Monastery in Batesville, Mississippi, because she saw the need to create access to mindfulness and Zen practice for a wider variety of people, including people like her. The Magnolia Grove Monastery is part of the Plum Village organization of monasteries created by the late Thich Nhat Hanh, considered the father of mindfulness, but also the main influence on the movement to create a socially engaged Buddhism. Rhonda is a professor of 20th century American history at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and she first became acquainted with Magnolia Grove Monastery in Mississippi only a few years ago. I always wanted to go on retreat. I never did, Steve. I never, never did. I never found the time. I was just so busy. There were so many things to do. There was so much in the world to look into, so many things to try to solve, so many actions that needed to happen, so many classes to teach, so many meetings to hold. And so I finally decided, actually, I'm going to gift myself a retreat. So I looked around and I found, I was like, a monastery? Where? Baseville, Mississippi? And I mean, I really repeated that over and over in my head. I was like, oh, no, I've got to look this up. Where, where is this? <laughs> and, you know, I GPSed it and I was like, oh, I can drive there in four and a half hours. And then I noticed that there was a retreat in October of 2017. And I said, wow, this is like fortuitous. <laughs> and so I booked my room and made all my arrangements immediately so that I would not change my mind because... I would often talk myself out of giving myself time like to just take care of myself because I, I felt like I had to take care of so many others. Getting to the monastery brought up a lot of stuff for me because I'm moving through Mississippi, <laughs> if I'm honest. As an African-American woman who is a historian of African-American history and the civil rights movement, there are stories just by place that began to emerge for me and symbols that I saw on the way that conjured right. <laughs> levels of, oh, right. where am I going again? <laughs> where am I going? You know, Confederate flags, as an example. Uh, thinking about magnolia trees and the sordid history of, of lynching and African-Americans. And this is part of the landscape. So I moved through all of that, and when I reached magnolia, I was, <laughs> I'm glad it was... Uh... An oasis at the end of that trip. Yeah. I just like grinned. I was just like, oh, I was like, how many ways can I breathe <laughs> so that you can hear like just the release that I felt and seeing other people who were coming and smiling and breathing and smiling because you're smiling. And as I spent my days there learning the practice and feeling the energy of people there, meeting monastics having opportunities to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with them just gave me a sense of home, gave me a sense of place, gave me a sense of, yes. And I looked around and I said, wow, where are the folks who look like me? A lot of practitioners there to heal, to rest, to take care of themselves, all of those things, no matter race, ethnicity, religion, age, all of us were there for some sort of healing and I looked around and said, wow, there are not many who look like me who are here was majority white. Some people would say this is a cultural issue. I don't know that it's cultural as much as it is who actually learned about the tradition in its migration from Vietnam to the West and also questions around access and who had access. Right. And so I think it's more that than it is cultural in the sense of more white people would just show up than more black people or more, you know, people of color, indigenous people. Um, there was a sense of both being hyper visible. Here I am, one of the few, but also like invisible, like the, the concerns and the issues that were on the forefront of my experience thinking about 
questions around police brutality and poverty and racialized gender oppression, all of those things weren't emerging as, as part of the consistent conversation. And so I actually didn't speak during that. We meet for like, you know, we have sharing for three days. And I didn't, actually didn't say anything the first time. I mean, I said my name, I said who I am, where I'm from, those kinds of things, but I didn't, I didn't say much. And then I think it became very clear that I didn't speak. That's the hypervisible part, right? It's like, okay, she didn't say anything. And it's not just like she didn't say anything. It's like, here's one of the few African-American women in the group of the two. One is a facilitator who didn't say anything. And so the next time I actually shared, and I shared what I'm sharing with you now, this is like so beautiful. I'm so happy to be in the space. And I'm tired sometimes of always being the one raising the issues that are human issues, are issues about humanity, about dehumanization, about um, what it means to be black in society amongst social justice folks and amongst spiritual folks who care about human beings. When I speak about it, then some people feel like you're being political, but we're, we're supposed to share from our experiences. Right? And so there's all this that was like moving through me in that very first retreat. And I said to myself, I would love for others like me to also experience this. Why aren't they here? And so I began to have a series of conversations with monastics here and there and other practitioners. We desire healing, transformation, rest. You know, we also want to learn how to slow our busy mind we want to learn how to deal with internalized and societal trauma. We also like to be joyful and we want those things. But where's the reach out? And so there was conversations about, you know, how do we get more BIPOC practitioners? Well, why don't we have a BIPOC retreat? And I ended up getting into a conversation with one of the sisters. They want to know, well, why does it have to be a BIPOC retreat? Why can't it be an everybody retreat? And and so, you know, that goes back to the question about why aren't more BIPOC people here already, you know? And so there's that cycle. And what she said to me was that some practitioners and some monastics feel it's exclusive. It's like it excludes people. And then I said, well, we have wake up retreats. These are retreats for practitioners who are from 18 to 35. But no one thinks about that as excluding me, who's over 35. We won't talk about what that age is. <laughs> we have retreats that are for those who need to gather and build community around 12-step processes, substance abuse, and healing the trauma that is expressed through substance abuse and the trauma that ex they experience through substance abuse. But no one talks about that as excluding those who don't have substance abuse. Why is it when we talk about BIPOC folks, where there's a need for collective cohering, affirmation, joy, moving through some of the historical and the contemporary traumas that BIPOC people experience, why is that seen as exclusive when these others aren't? This nexus around race, why are we stuck there? This is a healing process. If you are concerned about my pain, my historical trauma, my ancestral trauma, and you, you're concerned about my humanity and what it means for me to feel like I belong or for me to be around those who can understand me so that I can be fresh and bright and heal myself and be with others to do this collective work. And so if we're not healing as BIPOC people, as 12-step substance abuse people, if we're not building for the future generations this wake up, then how are we building this really broad, inclusive community that's based on equanimity and loving kindness and compassion and joy, which is what our teacher talks about. So what was that retreat like? How did it go? I mean, it really was, you know, like a family reunion. I mean, there were hugs, there's laughter. There is a kind of beautiful silence about being at the monastery. And that beautiful silence is not averse to laughter <laughs> or expressions of joy or um, playfulness, all of those kinds of things. And so all of that was manifesting along with now let us try to bring some stillness and some silence to our hearts and to our bodies. Let's try to release and let go of the anxieties and the traumas from the world. You know, all of this energy coming together. So there was there was a lot of joy and it's just so fulfilling. It's fulfilling and, and it's work. And you know, the other great thing about BIPOC retreats for me too is, I often also find myself in a situation where people are coming to me to ask me questions. 
about race or about gender when I'm on retreat. <laughs> and so, and I invite that because it's part of my aspirations to do that. But it also is tiring too. It can be tiring too. You know, I found another kind of space to rest. There were some things I didn't have to explain in a BIPOC retreat. That was Dr. Rhonda Williams from Vanderbilt University speaking with In Good Faith about a BIPOC retreat she organized in April of 2022 to help others, like her, experience Zen Buddhism as a way forward in healing. Her efforts at inclusion are mirrored and amplified in the story of Highlands Church in Denver, started from scratch specifically to support the LGBTQ community and their families. We spoke with Rachel McClare and Reverend Dr. Jenny Morgan, the current pastors of Highlands, about the need they saw to create a fully affirming space for LGBTQ folks and families. We hear from Rachel first as she reads us the ethos of Highlands. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and believe here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there's no hate here. Non-binary woman and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here for all of us, grace here. It's an imitation of the ridiculous love that Almighty God has for each of us and all of us that we live and love without labels. Mark Tidd, the founding pastor of Highlands, wrote that ethos and read it to the congregation at the first public Highlands Sunday service. So he read this ethos, and um, at the end of the service, he had a, a few different people come up to him and say, that thing you read at the beginning, that little poem that you read at the beginning, you need to say that every single week because that gave us a picture of what mm. this church could be. So we we took their advice, and it truly is the thing. You know, when we ask people like, hey, what brought you to Highlands Church? Almost 100% of them say, well, we read your ethos on the website and we wanted to see if you were for real. Or, well, we were looking for an affirming church. We came in and when we heard the words of our ethos, we began to just weep and we cried and we felt like we were at home. It's both not our theological statement of faith and also I think the best expression of our theological understanding of who God is, God's expansive hospitality and God's value on relationship. I think people are afraid of church today, especially LGBTQ identifying people and people who are advocates for LGBTQ identifying people. It's like, um, is there really a place for me? Like, could God really want me and love me? Or are you just trying to get me in here to try to change me or convert me to be straight or to stop loving LGBTQ people. So yeah, people are afraid for sure. So I'm wondering, uh, we hear about the surveys about the nuns, not the Catholic nuns, but the, the people who don't affiliate with any denomination. And that's yep. often interpreted as being, well, people are losing their belief in God. But it seems like Many of those people are not rejecting God. They are just not seeing their understanding of God reflected in the organizations they've tried going to. Does, does that ring true to you? We attract a lot of nuns. We, we attract <laughs> a lot of people who identify really with no religion or no brand of Christianity, but who want to be able to have something with God, who don't want to have to give up believing in God but they also don't want to have to kind of give in to a brand of religion that says some people are in and some people are out. And that might be because of their sexual orientation. It might be because of their political affiliation. So people come to our church and are wondering if they can either go back to church or explore church. They want God. They're less attracted to organized religion. I think why they feel drawn to us is that we we think God is big enough to hold our questions and our anger. And so it's a safe place to be mad about God. It's a safe place to be like, <laughs> mm, all this stuff you taught me, I don't know. And I'm just like, I don't know, like full of doubt. That's, I mean, it's a big part of our ethos. Like the doubters 
far outnumbered. <laughs> I mean, I think I embody it, right? Like I embody doubt a lot too, even that. And so we've given permission for that. And I think that's why it feels like it's a safe place. And Jenny and I, and our, like our whole teaching team, we really feel called to nurturing them into a robust, uh, maybe, a, um, you know, Brian uses the phrase, um, a just and generous version of Christianity, like nurturing into that. So giving them new ways of approaching the Bible, giving them new perspectives on verses that maybe have been used in a harmful way in their past, giving them new spiritual practices that actually are usually pretty ancient, but we have lost along the way. I, I don't know if we're doing everything all at once, but I feel like our, our deconstructor people are in a really similar place to the people that are brand new to the faith. And so what we're trying to do is just give new access points to all of them um, in a way that feels like it's grounded in a generous, a, a generous spirituality, a, a space that can hold divergent thoughts, that can hold different perspectives, but still unites us in the person of Jesus and this, this story of resurrection. What would you add to that, Jenny? I'm really curious. In my mind, we're constantly calling people to surrender to God. I, I think faith is a very slow process in general of surrendering to God. And I'm not sure that doubt ever completely goes away. So I think we're a church that has space for all of that, while at the same time, gently, generously inviting people into a more and more surrendered life to God. How has God surprised you in the process of creating and working with this community? God has surprised me in our community by helping me to see and experience through other people that God is so much bigger than I ever dreamed of or imagined. I think that in my earlier young adult life, I thought of God as fitting inside this theological box. And Highlands Church has just broken that box open for me and allowed me to experience God uh, as just so much bigger than I ever dreamed. You know, we started Highlands and I had begun to kind of put a theology together in my head of inclusion for not just LGBTQ people, but sort of this bigger understanding of God's redemption for all of humanity, for all of creation. But it wasn't until we were celebrating communion together that I really began to get a picture of it. At Highlands Church, we celebrate communion every Sunday, and it's you know, for us anchored in the Passover freedom meal that Jesus was celebrating just before he died and a, and a reaffirmation of, of God's covenantal commitment to humanity and friendship. We celebrate that every week and many Christian church traditions have rites of passage you have to go through or creeds or theologies you have to sign off on before you can participate. Right. We have what we call an open table where in the tradition of the Passover, the Seder meal, where at the beginning of the meal, some of the liturgy that said is for all who are hungry, come and eat. Like that's it for us. If you are hungry for God, you're welcome to come and participate in communion. You don't, you don't have to be a professing Christian. You don't have to be a part of our community. This is God's table, God offering God's body as sustenance to anybody who's hungry. As we began to, to do this week in and week out, the way that we serve communion is people can get up, walk down the aisle, come forward, and we have people serving communion. They hand a piece of bread and then they dip it into a cup of juice and they, they eat communion. So this is how we serve it. And anybody can serve communion. And it's this like sacred experience of standing there offering this body of God to all these people that come down. And we have families, so little kids that help serve communion and just like the full spectrum of humanity is involved <laughs> in this ritual. People of all different races and families made up of all different kinds of, of, you know, ways of being a family and individuals. And it's this picture of heaven that I had never seen before, ever, anywhere, and certainly not in the church before, where it felt like communion was this privileged thing and inaccessible to the majority of people. Instead, like communion has just become this little taste of heaven every single Sunday. That has been 
I'm not sure if I would use the word surprising, but I think it's been the most expansive experience for me theologically in who God is, is seeing this full diversity of God's beloved children celebrating in this thing that is open to everybody. Thank you to Rachel McClare and Reverend Dr. Jenny Morgan for sharing their experiences at Highlands Church. Our final guest is Dan Foster in Brisbane, Australia. His decision to create Backyard Church Online echoes what we already heard from Jenny and Rachel, that those with doubts still need a place to work out their faith. Some of the stories we've heard today have been focused on supporting groups that are in the minority here in the U.S., but Dan wanted to reach out to those who may feel like the minority, even within their majority religious group. When you look around and everyone seems to agree on something, you don't. Is there still a place for you at church? It's a safe space for people who have doubts and they want to explore them because churches aren't always safe for that. And it's not the way it should be, but sometimes it is. Belief in a Christian institution is a social exercise. It's about belonging. Often people think that they have to believe the right things in order to belong. And sometimes those messages are actually coming out from the pulpit or from the church. Suppress your doubts and put aside your questions and just have faith. But for a lot of people, that's not satisfactory. And they want a space where they can ask those tough questions and they can explore their doubts and... The Backyard Church Online is a safe place for their faith to fall apart and hopefully can help them put it back together. It might not look the same, but because we know God has children, he doesn't have grandchildren and every person has to work out their own faith. But it doesn't always feel safe to do it in the church when you're belonging, when your sense of belonging to the community is at stake. So to create that kind of a community, has that been difficult or has that been easy if you just have a few ground rules? Do people adhere to those pretty well? We've only been doing this little online community for less than a couple of months, and it's so far so good. But yes, we we lay down ground rules, absolutely. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Mm. We respect everybody's opinions. We're not trying to change anyone's mind about things. We ask questions <laughs> more than we give answers because the right question always leads a person to it, to an answer. And when Jesus was questioned, he almost always responded with more questions or he told a parable, he told a story or he told them you're asking the wrong thing. You know, he hardly ever directly answered a question. It's really interesting. Is that what binds the community together or makes it feel like a community that what what is in common is not a set of professed beliefs, but willingness to ask questions and discuss? I think what binds the community is there is a genuine desire in our community. These people, they want to follow Christ and that's the that's the thing that binds us together. Um, they just they just have doubts, or they have hurts, um, or they have questions about the institutionalized church community. I'll talk about the platform itself. That's a big part of why it works. The backyard church is a set apart space, so it's a sacred online community that's set apart. But say the ability to interact, the ability to chat and converse. Uh, and do all the functional social connection that Facebook enables, but in a set-apart space is what makes the community work. I can instantly message anyone and they'll get the notification on their phone. They can instantly message me. So there's real conversations happening. I feel like there's mutual encouragement and there's mutual spurring one another on. For example, say, um, you know, we went to church on Easter Sunday as a family we don't normally go to traditional church. And for me, that was quite a stressful experience. And I shared about it on the network. You know, people were commenting and being very supportive and offering advice. And it was, you know, it was really, really helpful. And then at the end of the service, you know, people say, how did it go? And what was it like? And so there's a space to reflect and there's a space to encourage the content, the conversations, the questions The we have like weekly meditations and weekly um um, like uh, biblical, like sometimes there's liturgies and prayers and scripture offered. It's not just me producing all the content. It's a team of people. So I get the benefit of what they're producing as well. Uh, so it's not just about not just about me. Um, but this kind of fills my need for Christian connection because the Bible's pretty clear, you know, we're not to forsake meeting together. Um 
But what that looks like is, well, there's no hard and fast about that. Because I grew up, I grew up as a pastor's kid in the conservative evangelical church, and it felt like everyone's eyes were on you the whole time, making sure you behaved and making sure you did the right thing. And the message very early on was church is not a safe place to come and be who you are. It's not a safe place to be yourself, and it's not a safe place to share your doubts or your fears or even your sin but it should be. So my hope is that in the future, we can create faith communities where people can come in their full glorious brokenness and be safe. Radical transformation happens when people find themselves in a place where it's safe. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They gather fig leaves to cover their nakedness because they're ashamed because they believe all of a sudden, now that they possess the knowledge of good and evil, they believe all of a sudden that it would be impossible for God to see them and still love them. And that's that's always been the problem ever since we all gather our fig leaves and we try to cover our shame. But we all believe that if people really knew me, there's no way they would still love me. And so I have to cover up and I have to fake, I have to pretend. And even in faith communities, even in church, sometimes even more in church than in other places, we gather our fig leaves and we cover up. But I want to create a church where people can be fully known and still fully loved, because that's actually the key elements of the Christian gospel. We say, come as you are, but we don't mean it, really. What would it look like if we created a church where people could be fully seen and fully known and still fully accepted and fully loved? Because ultimately, that's what we get from God. It would feel like, well, heaven. That's our time for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode exploring community and faith. What came to your mind? We hope you've been inspired to think about why your community is important to your spiritual life. Or if you're without community at this time, perhaps you've been inspired to search one out or make your own. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, be sure and include a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed, at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry, and we leave you today with the sound of chimes, played for us by Dr. Rhonda Williams. Meditations at Magnolia Grove Monastery start with single bell chimes to help those gathered focus their minds and their breathing and bring calm to their practice. We hope it does the same for you.